We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie. I'm Sarah. And today we are joined by the wonderful, amazingly talented, kind, wonderful, I'm going into the bio already, author Ruth Ware. Hi Ruth. Hi, so pleased to be here. So pleased to have you. Thanks so much. How are you? Oh, very well. Yeah, very good. Um, I've just come back from a rather grueling UK-US tour that wow. involved lots of flights and events and uh, many nights in hotels. Uh, so yeah, just co- quite quite happy to be home with my cats, with my kids, enjoying life. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I was going to say that sounds hideous. I'm sure it was very nice. But it was, no, it was <laughs> lovely. It was, it was amazing. But I think the thing about travel is you love it while you're doing it, but then you love it when you come home as well and you yeah. appreciate all the things about your home that you take for granted every day. So yeah, best of both worlds. I always Definitely. find as well, I love the thought of it and I think, oh, that's going to be really fun. And then when I actually have to do it, I'm like, oh, hold on. I have to like put a bra on and actually <laughs> leave the house now? Oh, okay. Talk to people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But you, you are so busy at the moment uh, out promoting, we're going to get into it in the bio in a second, but Zero Days, your new book. Uh, and it's, it's by all accounts, incredible and we've read it as well and loved it so thank you how exciting yeah yeah it's really nice to be talking about it it's such a funny thing writing a book you know you sort of spend a year kind of locked up with these people trying to listen to what they're <laughs> family telling you or... and, yeah and, they, and you can't really talk about it to anybody because no one really knows what's going on um so yeah it's it's always feels rather nice at the end of the process to suddenly be able to you know share that experience with other people <laughs> oh. it's like releasing a child out into the world i does guessing. feel a little bit like that yeah watching them toddle off to nursery being like oh i hope it's okay <laughs> <laughs> well more than okay i shall read the bio yes my usual disclaimer frankie wrote this so any issues with it she's to blame it's a really good even partnership we have Ruth. i was about yes. to say i like how you're dividing responsibility here so neither of you can be sort of fully held to oh no it's all it's all on me it's literally all on me sarah has no yeah, responsibility frankie does everything. sarah's reading it but frankie wrote it yes <laughs> yes very true yeah Ruth Ware is an international number one bestseller. Her thrillers In a Dark Dark Wood, The Woman in Cabin 10, The Lying Game, The Death of Mrs. Westaway, The Turn of the Key, One by One and The It Girl have appeared on bestseller lists around the world, including The Sunday Times and New York Times. Her books have been optioned for both film and TV and she is published in more than 40 languages. The It Girl was also recently shortlisted for the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year and Crime Novel of the Year at the Fingerprint Awards. (laughs) In her latest book, Zero Days, Jack and her husband Gabe are the best penetration specialists in the business and are hired by companies to break into buildings and hack security systems. But after a routine assignment goes horribly wrong, Jack arrives home to find her husband dead. It soon becomes clear that the police have only one suspect in mind her. Jack must go on the run to try and clear her name and find her husband's real killer. But who can she trust when everyone she knows could be a suspect? And with the police and the killer after her, can Jack get to the truth before her time runs out? Outside of writing, Ruth lives near Brighton with her family and describes herself as a wrangler of cats, eater of cakes. 
She is also very kind and a true joy to follow on social media due to her natural wit, charm and cat videos. I love this. What a great bio. I'm going to just cut and paste it onto all my books. (laughs) (laughs) Especially the the cake and cat part, obviously a key aspect of it. But as Sarah said in your bio, and obviously when I was was writing it, as we've established (laughs) earlier today, two nominations for uh, the it girl which is really exciting at two really big crime award ceremonies i know yeah amazing yeah i'm so i'm so pleased i've never been up for actually i think maybe i've never been up for either of them i've never got this far with the theekstons before i've been long listed before but never shortlisted uh, so yeah so pretty excited about that and the fingerprint awards are fairly new mm. so um yeah really happy to be on the shortlist for those that's very exciting yeah you are in fantastic company as well in terms of the other nominees oh my gosh yeah no the nominee list is amazing and very intimidating <laughs> <laughs> fully expect, i'll be very happy if i get this far <laughs> not at all i say a fantastic book as well and very great to see it getting all the recognition it deserves so very thank you we should mention or i should mention just being the good author here that um both uh the theekstons and the fingerprint awards have a voting component so if anyone who has read the it girl and enjoyed it did want to vote for me it would of course have my undying gratitude (laughs) well there you go incentive off to do it i'll wait until we finish because frankie gets cross when i she can hear me Click clicking in the background, background that's fair enough yeah i'll let I'll, i have to I edit the episodes and it's hair like it's just like i'm not typing to be fair i'm deleting questions as we go through them i am paying attention yes but yeah i'll learn my lesson but straight after off to vote the one thing that jumped out at me when i read the bio earlier when frankie sent it over is 40 languages is a huge amount. What's the most unique language that you're published in? Because there must be some odd ones on the list. Odd ones, Sarah? Odd ones. (laughs) There's some definitely some very, I mean, there's a lot more languages that I'm published in than I've ever visited. Yeah. I I wouldn't necessarily call them odd ones. No, odd um, was poor phrasing. Terrible phrasing. I think Icelandic was pretty cool because they're such a tiny country. I was like, wow, how many copies could they possibly sell? I think some, uh, maybe Moldovan was was pretty amazing. But yeah, just so many places that I have... Sinhalese, which is the language of Sri Lanka. Wow. Uh, I've always wanted to go to Sri Lanka, never been there. You've got an excuse now to go and check out Yeah, exactly. I can pretend it's a promo trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Add that to the tour. That's amazing. Now Zero Days, is it's out now, right? It, yes. Yeah. Out in both the UK and the US. Came out last week in the UK. So yeah. Amazing. And as we mentioned a bit about it in the bio, a brief synopsis, but what an interesting premise because I've heard of pen testers before so but where did you get the idea for this from well it's funny it sort of landed in my lap in a way I think the sort of original spark for the book came from listening to a bunch of podcasts in lockdown and I already had quite a few kind of tech podcasts on my radar because I'd written two sort of tech adjacent books uh, the turn of the key which was about a nightmarish smart house on one by one which has an app company at the center of it it's about a corporate retreat and the company um, who's holding the retreat is a a, a, te- a tech company so i had been sort of you know listening to various tech podcasts and trying to kind of you know figure out what it was like to to be in a, a software startup and to you know to be part of that world and then I finished both those books but I sort of carried on listening to a lot of the kind of podcasts but found myself drifting more and more towards the sort of crimey, darker end. 
and found one in particular called uh, Darknet Diaries, which was all about sort of, you know, hackers and cyber criminals and pen testers who are basically basically exactly the same as hackers, except they're doing it from the sort of ethical end of the spectrum. You know, they're basically the idea is if you have a secure system or a secure building in the case of uh, physical pen testers, you don't really know it's secure until someone tries to break into it. And ideally, you don't want the first person who tries that to be an actual criminal. So you can pay people to use all the same tools and techniques that a real hacker or a real burglar would use, but then kind of come back and report to you and say, you know, this held up, this maybe needs some work, maybe you should tell your staff not to use 123 password, you know, (laughs) all of that kind of things. And yeah, help you kind of tighten up any holes, close any loops that someone might wriggle through. And I thought, yeah, what a great, you know, what an amazing job, Mm. what an interesting job to do. And what kind of a person would you have to be to want to do that job? Because it's, you know, it's a pretty weird thing to decide to basically to learn how to be a criminal. You know, they're using all the same techniques with some, obviously some sort of ethical lines that they won't cross. Mm. But the basic techniques are exactly the same as, as what a criminal would use. But at the last minute, you know, when you've got really good at what you do to choose not to use those skills for kind of nefarious reasons, but to choose to use them, quote unquote, for good. I just thought you'd have to be a fascinating person to want to walk that path up to a certain point and then turn aside. I thought really interesting, complicated Mm. character. And hence, Jack, my main character, was born. I loved Jack. Me too. Like said, she had that uh, clearly a very strong ethical or moral compass, but she was feisty as well. And what I a badass! Really appreciate that in a yeah, like female-led book. She was yeah, just cool. I really loved writing her, and I think you know the thing about my books is often not exclusively, but often they're about regular, ordinary people who are sort of thrust into extraordinary circumstances, and that can sometimes mean that they come over as a bit sort of a bit scared and a bit kind of Mm. self-doubting mainly because I always feel like if I was in that situation you know I an ordinary person with no skills whatsoever was sort of thrust into the middle of a murder or something I would be an absolute nervous wreck (laughs) and so as you know a certain amount of that does make it into my characters but in the case of Jack she is someone who is pretty self-assured she has a pretty unique set of skills and that means that when she's put into an impossible situation she reacts in a very different way and that was quite fun to write it was quite interesting to take someone with a yeah with a really sort of badass set of skills and really kind of test her mettle yeah it was interesting to read as well because Mm. I would be very much the same if I ended up in the middle of a murder I would just cry and vomit. I'd just go and roll myself up in a corner and just sob. Yeah. I wouldn't be out there detecting or anything. So yeah, (laughs) I feel like my characters get a bit of a hard, you know, unfair rap for being, um, you know, less competent than they really are. But I thought, yeah, I think I would just have a nervous breakdown and never do anything. (laughs) They're just human. (laughs) Yeah. And with Jack, was she, I imagine you did a lot of research about different pen testers and things, particularly women in pen testing and women in technology in general and women in crime. Quite interesting kind of pathways that women don't typically go down. But did you find any examples that you drew on for Jack or did you have to kind of invent it yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've read tons of interviews, listened to loads of um, podcasts and things with all kinds of pen testers. But yeah, there were 
a few women who are very generous with their expertise, you know, really, I think pen testers know they have a pretty interesting job and they they seem, from what I've seen of it, to be quite happy to talk about that. And yeah, I did kind of steal some some real life examples. I remember listening to an interview with one pen tester who said that she had two two kind of props that she were her like sort of favorite things to take on a job. And they were a fake baby bump and a fake kind of arm brace because she said, you know, if you look vulnerable, if you're kind of tottering up to a, a locked door with your arm in a sling and lots of, you know, maybe carrying lots of stuff and sort of groping for your past nine times out of 10, someone will buzz you through yeah. because they're trying to be a good person. And I think it was the same interviewee made the point that actually women often make very good pen testers for that reason, because, you know, and actually, funnily enough, this was something that came up when I, I was interviewing police officers about the fugitive hmm. uh, aspect of the storyline, because once Jack discovers her husband's murder and discovers that she is the number one suspect, she has this awful choice to make of whether she sort of sits tight and hopes that the police figure out that they've made a mistake before she ends up convicted of this crime, or whether she goes on the run and tries to figure it out herself. And of course, she does the latter. So the sort of the second kind of two thirds of the book is really Jack on the run from the police. And that I spoke to a lot of police officers about that and, you know, found out about what powers they would have, what kind of techniques they would use. And they said that, you know, women are often very successful fugitives because people trust them and want to help them in a way that they don't with, you know, a six foot tall muscled man who looks like he could take you down with one punch. You're probably not going to let that person into your house, you know, give them a meal, give them a hand in the same way that you might with a woman who looks, you know, sort of vulnerable and like she's in need of someone's assistance. Interesting. Sling and the baby bump. Crack me up though, because it's so Ted Bundy. I was just thinking that. I was saying the same thing. Although his baby bump wasn't quite as convincing, I don't think. Not baby bump, yeah. (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think that is a really good point as well. And it gives me hope for the future that if we ever need to go on the run, at least we've got being women on our side. <laughs> so so few advantages of being a woman. So what a what a treat. And speaking of characters, which we've talked about quite a lot already, uh, a question we like to ask all the authors that we have on is if you had to be a character from one of your books, who would you be and why? Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> I've been asked this before and I always say, uh, I would definitely not be any of my main characters because I put them Stress. through such awful things. I just, yeah, they, it's one of the reasons why I don't write series fiction because I always feel that, you know, if one of my narrators or main characters gets to the end of one of my books, they deserve to have a bloody good rest. <laughs> I'm not going to put them through the exact same thing the next year. So yeah, definitely not one of the main characters. I think I wouldn't mind being, um, there's a character in my first book in a dot dot wood called Nina, who is very, I hate the word feisty, but she's sort of, she's very take no prisoners. She kind of says exactly what she thinks. She's very down to earth and very sarcastic. And she, I, in the book, I gave her all the lines that I would like to say to someone in that situation, (laughs) but I am much too polite to do so. Uh, so I think it'd be quite liberating to be Nina for a day and just go around being really rude to people. <laughs> that does sound fun. <laughs> so the other thing that really stuck out with reading Zero Days was quite a few of your books have that tech element in them, don't they? It's Is it an interest of yours or is it just that it's interesting to write about? 
Yeah, it's funny. I suppose um, Zero Days is kind of the third book that sort of had tech at the heart of it. Um, and so it, it obviously is a subject that I keep returning to. And I was trying to think about why. And I think part of it, particularly Zero Days, my dad was kind of an old school programmer. Um, and we were one of the first people I knew to get a modem and to mm-hmm. go on the internet. And he, the book is dedicated to him, in fact, as I put to my dad, who was paranoid about online security before yeah. it was fashionable. Yeah. And he really, you know, he really was. He was there back in like 1992, 1994, kind of teaching me and my sister about, you know, never reusing passwords, how to spot a phishing email, you know, long before it was kind of on the national curriculum as, you know, here's how to not get scammed. So I think part of it is just that he's always been there kind of in the back of my head talking about the fact that the internet is a bit kind of, you know, Mm. Wild West-ish. It's very difficult to police. But also I think as a writer, just any area of society that we are sort of still figuring out or still uneasy about just makes for sort of psychologically very rich territory. And I think technology, because of the ways it's developing so fast, we really are making the rules up as we go along. You know, it's only comparatively recently that like digital stalking and digital harassment has been recognised as a crime, mm-hmm. even. That was one of the things that I was dealing with in um, The Turn of the Key. And, you know, we've seen it again in terms of, you know, the whole sort of AI thing that's come up recently. Mm-hmm. It's arguably not as serious in some ways, but it's definitely going to make life a lot easier for a lot of scammers. Mm-hmm. And, we don't have the laws in place for that at the moment, you know, even just in terms of the amount of copyright material that's being used to train these models. The copyright laws were written for human beings. They weren't written for situations like this. And we're, it's being tested in the courts right now. So I think, yeah, anything that's kind of in flux, anything that's a bit, we're not quite sure how we feel about it. It all makes for, yeah, for, for interesting territory to explore in fiction. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I suppose it also gives you a a new angle. I mean, obviously, crime novels have been around for so long. You can only do so much, I suppose. Yeah. And I think as well, there's always, you know, uh, something that I often get asked about is how, how you deal with technology in crime novels, because, you know, Obviously, the advent of things like, you know, being able to Google anything, being able to have your mobile phone with you at any time, being able to dial 999 from literally pretty much anywhere in the UK has Mm. changed crime novels. You know, there are plots that, classic plots that hinge on someone not being able to contact someone or not being able to Google something or, you know, find out very basic information that would take us today less than five minutes. And all of those are shut off from you. So you sort of have two choices and I've, I've used both of them. You know, you can, you can have the choice of stripping your character's technology away from them. And that's something I did in, uh, in a dark, dark wood and a woman in cabin 10, um, where my character's on a cruise and there's kind of, there's no phone coverage, no internet. But the other option is that you lean into it and you take advantage of all of the, you know, you were saying, Sarah, all of the interesting plot possibilities that Agatha Christie and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Dorothy L. Sayers didn't have available to them. There's whole myriad ways for human beings to be evil to each other with the use of technology. And that's quite interesting to explore. Yeah. Isn't it great? The endless possibilities and endless ways to be mean to each other that seem to be (laughs) popping up every day. Do you have any, you say the technology is moving so fast at the moment, things like deep fakes and other terrifying developments are, are constantly evolving and getting more and more sophisticated. 
Are there any other areas that you're you're curious about and thinking maybe could inform a future plot? Oh, well, I can't say that. Someone <laughs> might write the book for me. But I will say I did retweet something the other day that gave me like proper shivers. And it was something that I hadn't heard about before. Um, but it was an audio deep fake. So it was basically someone had been phoned up by someone who well, wasn't a person. It was a it was a it was a deep fake of a, a voice like a simulation, I guess, of her daughter <sighs> saying that she'd been kidnapped and this was where to leave the money and blah, blah, blah. And the woman who was phoned said it was incredibly convincing. And, and you know, given how much we all put out there in terms of audio and, you know, how much is on the internet now, there's plenty of training material out there for um, for deep fake machines. So, yeah, that really did make me think, oh, God, <laughs> just so horrible. The idea of someone being phoned who sounds exactly like your child in deep distress, like that's pretty dark territory. God, it's the emotional manipulation of those kind of things that make it so sinister and horrible. Like even just the WhatsApp messages on their own were pretty bad, but bloody hell, that is that is terrifying. Truly. Wow. How scary. Let's uh, let's find something a little more fun. <laughs> <laughs> more lightheartedly. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about you and your writing process because you are incredibly prolific and you've, you know, written a, a huge amount of books in quite, you know, only a, sh- a short number of years even. So what do you enjoy most and least about the writing process? Oh, good questions. Um, I think for me, the most fun bit of a book is always when you've sort of got the initial idea and it feels really cool and you're kind of, you know, just coming up with all the possibilities and, you know, it feels like this book could be anything. It could be, I don't know, you know, it could be just an unscratched lottery ticket that could become whatever you want it to be. So that's always a really nice part of the process. And then I love it as you get to the end of a book and you're sort of galloping to a conclusion that you already know. It always feels like kind of a bit like running a race and you're sort of, you know, crossing the finishing line. But really, I enjoy most parts of the process. I love being edited. I know a lot of writers uh, don't enjoy that so much. (laughs) I would say when I first read my edit letters, I tend to have a pretty kind of, ooh, kind of reaction. I think most people do because fundamentally you're reading a 10 or 12 page letter of all the things that could have been better about your book. And that is never fun. Um, But I really enjoy the, I'm quite a Lisa Simpson character at heart. There's that bit on the Simpsons where she's like, grade me. (laughs) And that is a little bit me. I, um, so I do very much enjoy the process of being set a puzzle and then having to find out the cleverest and best way of solving it and then coming back with a manuscript that has hopefully done that and having your editor go yeah this is great that's really fun it's the closest you can come as an adult to getting an a star on your homework (laughs) do you think that's why you've gone towards crime as a crime writer that that puzzle solving element is that what appeals to you about it me i think the thing that i love about crime is it's a genre that's very connected to the reader so I, and, and all writing is that mm. in a sense, you know, you're always writing for a reader and imagining and feeling and experiencing. But I think with crime, it's a particularly direct relationship because you are constantly trying to pull the wool over their eyes, fool them, twist them, make them question their assumptions. And so it is very much a kind of a back and forth between the writer and the reader in terms of, uh, yeah, the sort of the puzzle element of the book. But I think the thing about psychological thrillers is you get to have both. You get to have a really cracking puzzle, which hopefully readers enjoy. 
but you also have a really strong kind of emotional journey. And I think with zero days, my books often are a bit of a pendulum and and maybe with zero days, I've gone slightly more towards the kind of the thriller side of it, like the emotional arc that Jack has, the experiences that she goes through, the sort of the cat and mouse chase of it and a bit less towards the kind of the puzzly whodunit. Although there obviously there is still a really strong whodunit in there. Jack would say that's the most important part of the book for her is to find out what happened to her husband. Yeah. I think she does say that at one point. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite crucial, I suppose. So another question that we like to ask every author we speak to is, is there a kind of trope from the crime thriller genre that you're a little bit sick of? Oh, I'm very anti-genre shaming in the sense of I, I don't, yeah, I don't love sort of pointing out things that I think are wrong with crime as a genre or with other people's books. I guess it's not something that I'm sick of, but I think it's not the kind of thing that I would never write is sort of very torture porny books, you know, ones where people are like locked in basements and horrible things are happening to them. And it's not, I, you know, no shame on other people. They're very tense, enjoyable books, but they're not for me. And I don't think I could make myself write a whole one. If I could sort of flip it a bit, I would say the thing that I am most defensive of in terms of tropes that other people, things that often come up in reviews is unlikable characters. Mm. And I love an unlikable character. I'm constantly writing unlikable characters. It's not something I really care about in friends in a weird kind of way. That makes me sound like my friends are all really unlikable. But I'm much, I'm much more interested in whether people are interesting and funny and quirky and original than whether they always make the right choices and always do the kind of, you know, the, the perfect sort of decision making process. And I think I apply that to when I write my characters. Obviously, I love them all because I wrote them, but they do do stupid things. They are irritating. They make bad decisions. They're not perfect. They, you know, they have lots of qualities that aren't necessarily textbook admirable qualities. And I, I, I don't care if other people find them unlikable. I think they're great. <laughs> but that's what makes them interesting. Like, how boring would it be to read a book where everyone's just really nice to each other? <laughs> just yeah. Well, yeah, and also if everybody always made great choices, practically no plots would be workable because no. they would just all do the right thing. And <laughs> everyone's home in bed by nine with a cup of tea. Like that's not <laughs> exactly. I do, I do agree. It's really irritating when it feels forced, yeah. and you can feel the writer is just making something happen for the sake of the plot. But, you know, like to use Zero Days as an example, the whole plot falls into place because Jack makes one really stupid decision, which is to go on the run instead of Mm. trusting the police. But she does that because of who she is. You know, it's seeded into her character. She's always been someone who has had to fight her own battles, who has had to make snap decisions, who, when she's faced with a problem, has to solve it herself. And she has a really difficult past with the police, including a police officer ex who's incredibly abusive to her Mm. and has used his powers to make her life as uncomfortable as he possibly can. So from my perspective, it's really the only decision she could make, Mm. even though in her shoes, I would in no (laughs) way do the same thing. I would be incredibly upset if any of my friends or family made that decision. (laughs) But going back to process, and you alluded to it slightly when when you answered the question. Do you, are you a planner or a pantser? Because it sounds like you know where you're going when you're writing, but how much into the planning do you get? 
I would say I'm a bit of both. Um, so I generally know a lot about where I start um, in terms of uh, I know a lot about the characters and often know a lot about the setting because setting is often very mm. important to my books. I often know a lot about the sort of character's backstory. And I know where I'm trying to get to in that I almost always know the solution to the mystery and um, who did it and why. And that's because of the kind of books I write. You know, it's very difficult to... I never want the reader to feel cheated. I always want them to feel when they got to the end that they had a fair shake at solving this. And I think the only way I can give that to them is by sort of seeding those clues through. So, yeah. So so basically, I have to know the solution in order to provide those breadcrumbs for the reader. But yeah, everything in between is kind of up for grabs and made up as I go along. So sort of half and half, I would say. <laughs> That's a good measure. Do you ever find particularly with the character development, that as you're writing, the character goes in a completely different direction to what you initially thought? Um, Sometimes, very rarely completely different. They'll often do stuff or say stuff that I hadn't really planned. (laughs) They very rarely go off the rails completely because usually the question that is intrinsic to the novel is the same question that is intrinsic to them. Mm. It's usually to find out what happened. Uh, so that kind of keeps them on track towards the ending. Um, but yeah, very occasionally there I wrote one book, I won't say which one because it is a slight spoiler, where a character at the end simply refused to die. They were supposed to die and they <laughs> they didn't. And I had to go back and replot in order to make that work uh, because as it was, it was just sort of a miraculous survival. Um, yeah, so very, very occasionally it will happen that characters will just be like, no, not doing that. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it when characters become autonomous for people. It's so interesting. And slightly creepy. Hmm. Well, it can be. That's a book in itself, right? Yes. Huh? Yeah. You can have that one, Ruth. <laughs> so the last of our standard questions, before we get on to the really fun one, Frankie, what was the last book that you read and loved? Oh, yes. I was trying to remember. And the problem that I always have is that I'm often reading ahead of time because I get sent so many proofs. Mm. So I sort of have to try and think, you know, what what is that coming out in nine months? Because that's not going to be very helpful to people. People can pre-order. It's fine. True. Yeah. One book that I recently came very late to was um, Hugh Howey's Wool. Ooh which I hadn't read. And often when I'm sort of coming up with a new ideas or a new book, I like to read something that's really like not crime, um, something that's in a completely different genre. So because I knew it was on Apple TV, it's being adapted, I thought, right, I'd like to read it before it gets onto TV so that I can, you know, like many people, I prefer to read the book before I see the film. And I thought, and it's brilliant. It'll be sci-fi, so it'll be completely different to crime. Except then, of course, I start reading it and it's brilliant, but it's also a stone cold police procedural. It's basically <laughs> a sheriff investigating a murder in his jurisdiction. So I was a bit like, God damn it, those crime writers, they get everywhere. Pesky crime writers. <laughs> uh, but you enjoyed it regardless. Yeah, it's really good, really gripping, really page turning. And as you you said as well, I think the relationship between uh, crime readers and writers is very, very unique to the genre. And it's something that I think that a lot of the authors we have have had on have shared your sentiment on that. But I also find the relationship between other crime writer authors really interesting and well. It seems to be such a supportive and welcoming community. Uh, and you are always supporting other authors and posting about other books and things. So is that something that you actively seek out to do or is it just ends up that way because you get so so many brilliant books to read? It's a bit of both. I mean, definitely I feel very lucky to have got where I have in my career. You know, I'm able to be a full-time writer, which is something that I always wanted to be, but never, certainly never took for granted. 
And yeah, if I can, you know, give people a helping hand or cheer on a colleague or, you know, support someone, I feel like that is, you know, part of my job. (laughs) But also generally crime writers, yeah, we are a really lovely community. I think crime is an incredibly broad church. It's very expansive. It's a popular genre, which means there's, you know, plenty to go around. We're not sort of all fighting over the, you know, three poetry collection sales or whatever (laughs) it is. Um, So, yeah, I think I think crime writers are generally pretty lovely, generous people who want the best for their genre and are usually refreshingly fairly free from ego. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I, I went to Harrogate last year and I'll be there this year. Will you be there this year? I will definitely be there. I am in conversation with Lisa Jewell, which Wonderful. is going to be an absolute blast. So yes, please come and see us. <laughs> definitely. Well, what a treat. But I always find that every bit, there's no real hierarchy in, at these events and things. Everyone's just hanging out in the tent. Everyone's equally drunk and everyone's having a great time. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is completely. And um, actually, Harrogate is one of the few festivals that doesn't really have a green room Mm. because normally authors hang around in the green room. Um, Harrogate doesn't really have one. So everybody just hangs out in the bar, whether that's, you know, agents, editors, readers, writers. Yeah, yeah, just all getting drunk on the lawn, as you said. (laughs) The great human leveller getting drunk on the lawn. Sarah's looking at me now because it's time for me to tell you some really, un- really unfortunate news, actually, Ruth. I'm really sorry to have to, because you've been so lovely. You've been so generous with your time. And now I have to tell you, unfortunately, you have committed a crime, Ruth. A crime so heinous and shocking in nature, not torture porn, but still pretty bad. Because <laughs> unfortunately, you were caught and you've been sentenced to death for it. Oh, I know. Gosh, that's pretty harsh. I don't think we had that in the UK anymore. I must have been brought it back just for you. Yeah, Yeah. that's for me. Really bad. But that's the first question: is what do you think you did? Oh, I think we've only got the um, death penalty for treason, haven't we, in the UK? So I I guess I must have killed King Charles. Oh my God, Charles (laughs) went right there. Not just low level treason. I'm not really a royalist. Straight to the top. That far. (laughs) Sorry. You didn't, you didn't even just go for like a low level royal, like a cousin or something. You went straight for the king. I mean, I think it has, I think to be treason, it has to be yeah. the head of state, I think. So yeah, I think, I, sorry, Charles. I mean, they put me in this position, not me. Well, I didn't look, choose this. All or nothing, go big or go home, etc. Why not? <laughs> I think that would do the job though. I think that would. You're making it sound like it was an accident. You didn't plan to do it. It's these things, you know, accidents happen, right? But I guess that defence clearly didn't work in court. Didn't if work I'm in court. Being no, no. sentenced to death. Yeah, I do think. I do think that even if it was an accident, then people would be like, "You did kill the king, though." <laughs> like, <laughs> I know it was a whoops. maybe some form of gross negligence. Like, yeah, some sort of what? what yeah, what could I have done? I can't imagine running him over. I don't imagine he just goes jogging <laughs> along the roads of Windsor. <laughs> He was out chasing a swan or something. Point. I think there's a few there's a few plot holes here that we need to iron out. But for the <laughs> moment, we'll jump to the uh, to the scene where I've been sentenced to death. Okay, I love that you're plotting this. This is perfect. Okay, so you unfortunately, <laughs> R.I.P. Charles, uh, and you've been as they found guilty and sentenced to death. Very sad, very unfortunate. We're in a period of national mourning now, I suppose, as well at the same time. So thanks for that. Oh yeah, to get a bank holiday out of it, this could be worse. Surely, surely. But the good news is, good news, the slightly good news is we will get you the death row meal of your dreams as a, you know, as a, a something, at least the least we could do, really. So what would your death row meal be? Oh, 
I think it would have to be some sort of incredibly elaborate tasting menu <laughs> to spin it out yes. for as long as possible <laughs> in the hopes that my lawyer would be able to achieve a reprieve. So, yeah, I, I would have, um, so, yeah, you know, like Manoir Quatre Saison nine course tasting menu, starting with amuse-bouche and going all the way through to, you know, glazed rhubarb souffle and petit four or something like that, just to just to keep on this mortal plane for as long as possible in the hopes that I might be able to invade my fate. How yeah. many courses are we thinking on this menu? At nine. Nine. I think you could drag with out a company wine flight and then I'd be as, as yeah, drunk as possible say. by the end of it. Yeah. Well, you want to be full and, and really drunk by the end, ideally, if you have to go, right? I think if I'd eaten a nine course tasting menu with nine courses of accompanying wine, I might not actually care too much if I was being executed. <laughs> I might be so incredibly stuffed. I'd just be like, it's fine. Just take me. I deserve it. So that's, that's a nice way to go. I think that's the best way. Good shout. Quite jealous. <laughs> if only you'd killed the king, Sarah. Gosh darn it. Yeah. <laughs> you can come in with no. me. I could name you as a co-conspirator if you like. There we go. The plot thickens. I'm known for my love of the royals. I don't she think really is. would believe it, I'm afraid. I would find that very funny. That would be the plot twist, surely. <gasps> oh, yes. The disguise that you had maintained all these years to get close to the royals in order to That's do the She's game. Kaiser Soze'd us this entire time. Unbelievable. Yeah. 38 years I've been working on this. Ruth, she camped out when the Queen moment. died. She literally camped in London. That was all I'm just saying you'd have to have a very good reason for doing that. And maybe that reason would be to get close to Prince Charles. <gasps> to get a nine-course tasting meal. Yeah. Also that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, great. Um, <laughs> in further good news for you, we are also going to bury you with the book of your choice. What's it going to be? Yeah, so I, I thought about this. I got a heads up on this question, which is a good thing because... Um, <laughs> I immediately couldn't think of remotely what I would choose to be buried with. My first sort of thought was that if I was dead, I probably honestly wouldn't really care. I'd go for something really personal. Like, you know, I was thinking about, um, wasn't it Dante Gabriel Rossetti who buried his first wife with a volume of his poems because <laughs> he said he was never going to write again? And then had like whatever the opposite of buyer's remorse is and was like, I had to dig her up oh, to <laughs> get his poems back. And I was thinking, maybe, you know, maybe I would like to be buried with like a volume of my children's poems, except sadly they haven't written any. Oh, well, maybe, maybe the, the death of King Charles would inspire some works from your children. <laughs> yes, true. An outpouring. Yes. Of... And, your, and their mother being found guilty for the crime. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Or, you know, may, maybe I think just on, you know, again, on the theory of delaying this as mm. long as possible, I think I would have to ask to be buried with something really obscure, like an original volume of Chaucer or something like that, just because you're very hard to get hold of. Nice. And mm. that, again, would enable me to exhaust the appeals process and, and hopefully get this very unjust conviction overturned. Wow. I really, I find that question so interesting because people take it in so many different ways. And I like that you're still looking for a loophole in all of this <laughs> to the bitter end, clinging to that. Absolutely. Fiona Cummins said that she would take a book on being turned into a vampire so she could come back to life. You know, everyone's kind of got a different way with it. But surely you'd have to read it before you were dead. Once you're dead, that window is closed. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm I guess, I guess if you believe in vampires, there. it's it, nothing really makes much sense. But um, yeah, True. interesting. 
Wow, that's a, that's a good point. Okay, so very obscure Chaucer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, something there's only like two editions of in the whole world. So they'd have to spend a very long time persuading the British Library to give up their, yeah, their first edition of the uh, Canterbury yeah. Tales. And they'd be closed because they'd be in the National Period of Mourning. Oh, so yes. more time. It really is. Yes. So true. Yes. I've thought this all out. It's all come. <laughs> <laughs> Love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> can tell you're a crime author, Ruth. Yeah. You've done this before. Wow. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been an utter delight, as expected. And amazing that Zero Days is out now. Can you give us a sneak preview on what you're working on next? Oh, well, another book, obviously. That's but, good. Yeah, it's Not a bit of a lot. <laughs> good. It's at a bit of an ugly duckling stage at the moment. I'm sort of, hence reading uh, non-crime to try and kind of, you know, uh, so yeah, so it's all, it's all a bit under wraps at the moment, okay. but it's, I think it's going to be much more of a sort of uh, back to my love of uh, locked room mysteries Ooh. and a closed environments. I think it might involve a, a luxurious island in the South Pacific. Oh. Can't wait. Very exciting. But not to distract from Zero Days. Absolutely loved it. Everyone should go and read it. And it was a perfect summer read as well. Mm. When I was reading it over the weekend, I was thinking, I would love to be next to a pool reading this. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Take it on your holidays. (laughs) Definitely. Very much so. And so available now. Everyone go out and buy Zero Days, buy all of Ruth's back catalogue because it's all incredibly compelling reading. You can't get enough. And where can people follow you online? Uh, so I am on an increasing plethora of <laughs> social media platforms. It's getting very confusing. Definitely uh, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, uh, probably Blue Sky and Threads and whatever all the other ones are called. <laughs> pretty much across all of them as at Ruth Ware Writer on all of them. So yeah, nice uh, consistency. not on there as that, it's probably not me. Very good tip. Yeah, there's it's probably another five networks probably sprung up while we've been recording. So I have oh, to go. <laughs> almost certainly. This time next week, three of them will be dead and there'll be two new ones swinging up. It's exhausting, isn't it? God, can't stop. Um, and Sarah, where can people follow us? You can find us at Red and Varied Podcast on most of the socials. I don't think we're on threads. Yeah, we are. are we? Pay attention, Sarah. Yes, we're on threads. Well, I don't think you posted about that, Frankie. Well, I did so. on threads. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. though isn't it yeah. you don't know you're on threads well indeed. Yeah, well, we're, we're on threads apparently um, <laughs> or you can email us at redandburiedpodcast at gmail.com very good uh, uh, Ruth thank you so much again it's been such a delight thank to chat you. to you and yeah will you come back in the future to talk about your next oh, ugly duckling of course yeah when my ugly ducklings <laughs> turn into a swan I would love to so uh, yeah thank you so much for having me it's been a delight thank you thank you thanks for listening everyone we'll be back soon with another episode until then don't kill the bye. king okay bye <laughs> took that too far didn't you I said don't kill the king So that's a good thing. Hi, folks. This is Tony Black, co-host and producer of Between the Notes, a podcast all about the music of film and television. Myself and co-host Sean Wilson delve into a range of topics, including brand new film score releases. So four four notes can can communicate the primal vengeance and rage of Robert Pattinson's, uh, Pattinson's, I should say, uh, interpretation of Batman. Yeah. Focuses on specific composers such as Ennio Morricone. Just to put this in context, Gwyneth Paltrow got an Oscar before Ennio Morricone did. I mean, how does that? <laughs> 
how, how, how does that work? And special episodes focusing on topics like adventure movie scores. I think that principle is consistent all the way through Conan because it has to be, because it, it, it is an opera in which the music is the dialogue. We're available on all podcast platforms and on social media at Between Notes Pod on Twitter and Facebook. So please subscribe, get in touch, and join us to discuss the sounds of cinema and television between the notes. Mm-hmm.